Section 14 of Uther and Igraine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thor Van Walsam in Hardwick, Vermont. For more information on this reader, please visit ThorVWIS.cool. Uther and Igraine by Warwick Deeping. Book 2, Chapter 4. Radamanth's words to the girl proved very true before many days had gone. His prophetic belief in Gorlois's mood found abundant justification in the event. Gorlois had the warm imagination of his race, an imagination that found extravagance and rich taste ready ministers to work his purpose. Igraine, met by all manners of devices on all possible occasions, began to realize the cares of those whom a purblind world insists on smothering with limitless favors. Flowers were poured in upon her, worked into posies, garlands, shields, harps, crosses, all bearing with them some mute plea for mercy. It might have been perpetual May Day in Radamanth's house, so flowered and scented it was. Flowers were followed by things more tangible, a pearl-set cithern, a great white hound, a gold girdle, a pair of doves in a cage of silver wire, a necklace of rich stones gotten by some Byzant mart. Gorlois seemed ready to send her all the finery in Winchester, despite her messages and her words to him. My lord, I can suffer none of these things from you. Servants and slaves came down to Radamanth's house as though they had been sent from Sheba, while one of Radamanth's men went back from Igraine like an echo, bearing back the unaccepted baubles. It was a patient game, and rather foolish. These were but small flutters in Gorlois's sweep for the sun. Had not Igraine been stabbed in the public gardens? Gorlois put the incident to use. He formed a bodyguard of certain of the noble youths who were under his patronage, and warned Igraine with all reverence that he had acted for her sanctity, and that a dozen gentlemen would follow near her when she walked abroad, or went to bath or church. Even her humblest stroll in the street began to partake of the nature of a triumphal progress. Children would gather to her in the gardens and throw flowers and laurel branches at her feet, and she would be followed by music and some sweet love ditty to the harp. A hundred quaint flatterers seemed to dog her from door to door, till she hardly dared to stir out of Radamanth's garden. Naturally enough, her name was soon the one name in Winchester. The good folk, with their Celtic beauty-loving souls, spoke of her with quaint extravagance. Her skin was like the apple blossom in spring, and her lips like rich red may. Her feet moved soft and swift as sunlight through swaying branches. Her hair was a cloud of gold, plucked from the sky at dawn. She was gaped and pointed at in the street like a prodigy. When she went into church on Sunday, half the folk turned to stare at her and a clear circle was left about her where she sat in the nave. She was, for the season, the city's cynosure, its poem, its gossip. Aphrodite might have stepped out of mythology and taken lodging at Radamanth's, to judge by the curiosity displayed by the people, and doubtless many a comfortable piece of business came to Radamanth thereby. Many women would have glorified for self's sake in such a pageant of flattery. It was not so with the grain. She was a woman who mingled much warmth of heart with strength of will, and fair measure of innate wisdom. Her feelings were too staunch and vivid to be swayed or weakened by any fresh circumstance, however strange and magnificent it might appear. Her love, once forged, could bend to no new craft. 
her thoughts were all of Peleus, and any glory her beauty received she kept it in her heart for him. Igraine was so eternally in love that even worldly prides seemed dead in her, and she had not vanity enough to be tempted by Gorlois's great homage. The whole business troubled her not a little. There was a certain mockery in it that hurt her heart. It was as if she had panted in thirst for water, and some rude hand from heaven had thrown down gold. Gorlois had her in measure at his mercy. He seemed to take all her rebuffs with a sublime stoicism, and she had no one to whom she could appeal. She wished to bide in Winchester, for the city seemed to promise her the best chance of seeing Peleus or Uther, and of learning if these twain were one. One night there was music under her window. Flute, harp, and cithern with deep voices were pleading for Gorlois under the stars. Egraine listened, lying quiet, and thinking only of Peleus. Take then my heart, my soul, my shield, my sword, sang the voices under the window. Igraine kissed the gold cross that hung at her bosom and longed till her heart seemed fit to break for yearning. If only the song had come from Peleus, how fair it would have sounded in the night. As it was, the whole business made her feel desperately weary. Gorlois had begun by holding somewhat aloof. It was part of his purpose to work behind a glowing and fantastic screen, serving Igraine more at a distance, in a spirit of melancholy, that should web round him with a mystery that was more splendid than truth. He bore Igraine's passive antagonism for a while with a spirit of enforced fortitude, going cheerfully by the old and somewhat foolish saying that a woman's looks lie against her heart, and that persistence wins entry in the end. To do credit to Gorlois's self-favor, he never considered the ultimate shipwreck of his enterprise as possible. He had fame, gold, bodily favor on his side, and what woman, he thought, could gainsay such a chorus? There are some men who never fail in anticipating success, and Gorlois possessed that quality of mind. As the days went by, and the girl was still stoned to him, he began to chafe and to look for stauncher measures. The gay gentleman who served him suggested various expedients, one a more passionate appeal, another sly bribery of servants. A third, who was young in years, hinted at humble despair that might evoke pity. Gorlois laughed at them all and swore he would win this girl, hook or by crook, in a month or less, or lose all honor his sword had won. He was tired of mere courtesies that ran contrary to his more stormy spirit. He had a liking for insolent daring, for a snatch at love as at an enemy's banner in the full swing of a gallop on some bloody field. Mere mild homage was all very well for a season. Gorlois loved mastery and believed there was no wine like success. About this time, a horde of heathen ships came from the east, sailed past Vectis, and began to pour their wild men into the country twixt Winchester and the sea. Hamlets and manors were burnt, peasant folk driven to the woods, the crops fired, the cattle slain. The noise of it came into Winchester with a rabble of frightened fugitives who had fled to the city for refuge. Ambrosius, the king, was in Caerleon, and Uther, errant, so that the chance fell to Gorlois of driving the heathen into the sea. No man could have been more heartily glad of this innovation. Igraine should see him swoop like a hawk in his strength. She should hear how he led men, and how his sword drank blood. 
In making war on the heathen, he would boast himself before her eyes and show her the merit of manhood and the glory of a strong arm. Winchester bustled like a camp. Troops poured in from Sarum, and the sound of war went merrily through the streets. Folks boasted how Gorlois would harry the heathen. He rode out one night with picked men at his back and head straight for the coast while Elder of Gloucester, a veteran knight, marched southward before dawn with five hundred footmen. It was Gorlois's plan to cut the heathen off from their ships and crush them between his knights and the spearmen led by Eldol. It was such a venture as Gorlois loved, keen, shrill, and full of hazards. Riding straight over hill and dale, they saw the glimmer of waves as the sun rose, and knew they had touched the sea. Gorlois's scouts had located the main mass of the Jutes camped in a valley about a nunnery they had taken, and the British knights coming up through the woods saw smoke in the valley and men moving like ants about the reeking ruin of the holy house. Looking north, they saw a beacon burning on a hill. Eldol's signaled that he had closed the woods north, east, and west with his footmen, that he waited only for Gorlois to sweep up and drive the heathen on to the hidden spears. Never was there a finer light in Gorlois's eyes than at such a season. He loved the dance and noise of steel, the plunging hustle of horses at the gallop, the grand rage of the shout that curled like the foam on an ocean billow. His courage sang with the wind as his knights rode down over the green slopes in a great half-moon of steel, a moving barrier that rolled the savage folk northwards and rent them like a harrow of iron. By the blackened walls of the nunnery, Gorlois caught sight of a line of mutilated bodies tied to posts, dead nuns, stripped and still bleeding. The sight roused the wolf in him. Kill! Kill were his words as they rode in upon the skin-clad horde. It was savage work, bloody and merciless. Eldol's men closed in on every quarter, and the heathen were cut down like corn in summer. Very few went back to their ships that day. Scores lay dead with their fair hair dribbled in the blood about the ruins, and on the quiet slopes of the dale. As they had measured out violence to the peasant folk and women, so it was meted to them in turn. Vengeance piled up great measure, running over with blood. Some sixty maimed men were taken alive, but mere death was too mild for Gorlois when he remembered the slain nuns. He had certain of the captured burnt alive, others hacked limb from limb, the rest crucified near the river for the birds to feed upon. Then he buried the nuns, and made a great entry into Winchester, taking care to ride past Igraine's window, with his white horse bloody to the saddle, and his armor splashed as he had come from the field. She should see his manhood, if she would not have his presence. This single slaughter, however, did not end matters on the southern shores. Bands of Saxons were foraying from Kent, where they had established themselves, and Gorlois rode out again and again to crush and kill. There would be battles in the woods, bloody tussles in the deep shadows of Andredswold, wild flights over moor and waste, triumph cries at sunset. Three times Gorlois rode out at the head of his knights from Winchester. Three times he came back victorious, hacked and war-stained, thundered in by the people, past Radamanth's house to the church in the market square. Igraine sat at her window and watched him go by, lowering his spear to her with all his proud love ablaze on his face. 
had he not driven the barbarians into the very heel of Kent, and left many a tall man from over the seas rotting in sun and rain? It was customary year by year in Winchester to hold a water pageant on the river, depicting legendary and historic things that had passed within the shores of Britain. August was the pageant month, and in this particular year the display was made more elaborate in order to celebrate the rout of the heathen by Gorlois, and to please the common folk who had made him their idol. The pageant was of no little splendor. Great galleys, fittingly decorated, were rowed down the narrow stream amid a horde of smaller craft, each great barge bearing figures famed in British legend lore. The first barge portrayed Brute the Trojan, voyaging for Britain. Others, Locrin's death by the river Severn. Brududibras, mythical founder of Winchester, the reunion of Lear and Cordelia, Porex, the fratricide done to death by damsels. One barge, draped in white and purple, moralized the reconciliation of Brennius and Belenus at the intercession of their mother. A great galley in red and white bore Joseph of Aramathy and the Holy Grail, and a choir of angels who sang of Christ's blood. Last of all came Alban the Protomartyr, pictured as he knelt to meet his death by the sword. The day was blue and quiet, with hardly the shimmer of a cloud over the intense gaze of the sky, while banners of rich cloth were hung over the balustrades of the river terraces, and the gardens themselves were full of gay folk who kept carnival, and watched the boats go by. The great pageant galleys had hardly passed, and the small craft that had kept the bank were swarming out into midstream, where a great barge with gilded bulwarks and a carved prow came sweeping down like a swan before the wind. It was driven by the broad backs of twenty rowers clad in scarlet and gold. In the stern sat Gorlois, holding the tiller, with a smile on his keen lips as a quavering clamor went up from the gardens and the boats that lined the shallows. By Radamanth's house Gorlois held up a hand, and the blades foamed as the men backed water. The great barge lost way and lay motionless on the dappled silver of the stream. Slowly it was pulled into the steps that ran from the water's edge to the terrace of Radamanth's garden. A light gangway was thrown ashore and a purple carpet spread upon the steps, while the men lined the stairway with their oars held spearwise as Gorlois went up to greet Egraine. Clad in white and gold, with a rose over her ear, she was sitting between Radamanth and Lilith on a bench at the head of the stairway. There was an implacable, irresponsive look on her face, as Gorlois came up the steps and stood in front of her like a courtier before a queen's chair. Radamanth and the merchant folk present were on their feet and uncovered. Only Igraine kept her seat in the man's presence and looked him over as though he had been a beggar. They were left alone together on the terrace, Radamanth shepherding his merchant friends aside for the moment with the discreet desire to please the count. Gorlois stood by the stairhead and told Igraine the reason of his coming, as though she had not guessed it from the moment his barge had foamed up beside the steps. He told her frankly that he wished to speak to her alone, and that his barge gave her an opportunity of hearing him without his having the advantage of her in solitude, while the noise of oars would drown their words. Igraine listened to him with a solemn face. She began to feel that she must face her destiny and give the man the truth for good. Procrastination would avail nothing against such a man as Gorlois. Being so minded, she gave Gorlois her hand and hardened to satisfy him that day. 
Away went the great barge before the strong sweep of the long oars. Igraine watched the water slide by, foaming like a mill race as the blades cut white furrows in the tide. The river gleamed with color as innumerable galleys, skiffs, and coracles drifted in the shadows or darted aside to give passage to Gorlois's barge. Fair stone houses, gardened round with green, slid back on either side. They passed the spectacular galleys one by one, and the wooden wharfs packed with the mean folk of the city, and, foaming on under the great water-gate, drew southward into the open country and the fields. Igraine looked at Gorlois and found his face impenetrable with thought. A fillet of gold bound his hair, and he was wearing his great sword and an enameled belt over his rich tunic. The cushions of the barge had been sprinkled with perfumes, and the floor covered ankle-deep with flowers. Igraine groaned in spirit and read the old extravagance that had persecuted her so long, and made a mockery of her love for Peleus. Gentle meads lapped greenly to the willows, giving place anon to woods that seemed to stride down and snatch the river for a silver girdle. The festival folk on their skiffs were out of sight and hearing, yet Gorlois's barge ran on to plunge into emerald shadows, tunnels whose floors seemed of the blackest crystal, webbed with nets of green and blue, whose vaultings were the dense groinings of the trees. Not a wind stirred. The great curving galleries in the woods were dark and mysterious, the water like glistening basalt, the trees dreaming over their own images in an ecstasy of silence. The foam from the oars was very white, and the moist swish of the blades made the silence more solemn by contrast, while the water seemed to catch a golden flicker from the flanks of the barge. Igraine knew well enough what was in the man's heart as he sat handling the tiller, and watching her with his restless eyes. She was quite cold and undisturbed in spite of her being at his mercy, and the consciousness that in her heart she did not trust him vastly. Gorlois had spoken only of the town, and they were running on under dense foliage into the forest solitudes that edged the river. Yet Igraine had faith in her own wit, and believed herself a match for Gorlois, or any man for that matter, save Peleus. Gorlois passed the time by telling her of his battles in Andredswold, how he had driven the heathen into Thanet, and freed Andred's town from Leaguer. Igraine began to wonder how long it would be before he would turn to matters nearer to his heart. The day had already slipped into evening, for the water pageant was ordered late, so that it might merge into a lantern frolic on the river after dusk. Igraine, seeing how the light lapsed, told Gorlois to have the barge turned for Winchester. She had hardly spoken when the boat ran out from the trees into open water. In the west the sky was already aflame, ridged tier above tier with burning clouds, while the blaze fainted zenithwards into gold and azure. A queer cry, as from a man wary of torture, came down from the west. On a low hill near the river, Bleak against the sky stood a black concourse of beams, sat upright in the ground, looking like charred pillars of a burnt house. They were crosses, and the bodies of men crucified. Gorlois pointed to them with the evening glow on his face, and, taking a horn that hung at his belt, blew a loud call thereon. At the sound a vulture rose from a crossbeam, and went flapping heavenwards a black blot against the scarlet frieze of the west. 
Others followed, like evil things driven from their food. Again the cry, the wail from one who had hung torn and racked in the parching sun, came down from the darkening hill. The grain shuddered and felt cold at the sound, and watched the figures against the sky with a kind of awe. Who are these? she said. Dogs from over the sea. Some are still alive. These pirates are hard. They die slowly despite beak and claw. Such be the death of all who burn holy houses and homes and put women and children to the sword. Take them down or let them be killed outright. Never. At my prayer. What I have done, I have done. Cruelly. Cruelly, by madam! You should have seen twenty dead nuns tied to stakes as I have seen, and you would gloat and be glad as I am. By God, little mercy had this awful at my hands in the glades of Andritzwold. I burnt and crucified and tore with horses. Mere steel is too good for such as these. My lord! What is hate unless it is hate? I can never brook an enemy to Britain. Egraine had sudden insight into the core of Gorlois's nature. She understood in a vague, swift way what primeval instincts were hidden him, ready at the beck of baser feelings such as jealousy or smitten pride. Womanlike, she recoiled from a man whose strength was so inflexible that it owned no pity or leaving kindness where malice or anger was concerned. She loved strength and the natural wrath of man, but she had no touch of the Semiramis around her, and her heart could not echo Gorlois's wolf-like cry. The rowers had turned the barge, and they were soon back again under the shadows of the trees. It was dim and ghostly with the onrush of night, while a faint fire flickered through the trees from the west and touched the sullen water with a reddish flame. Gorlois's face was in the shadow. He was leaning over the tiller towards Egraine and his eyes seemed to burn out upon her face and to make her heart beat faster. She sat as much away from him as the gunwale suffered, and looked ahead over the misty river, or up into the dense black bosoms of the trees. The foamy rush of the oars and the grind of the looms in her rowlocks half drowned Gorlois's words as he spoke to her. Egraine, my lord, you have read me to the heart. Egraine turned and looked him full in the face. Now that the brunt had come, she was strong and ready to tell the man the truth, though it might be bleak and bitter to his pride. Gorlois was very near her, and she could see his white teeth between his lips and the glint of his eyes as he leant towards her in the shadows. Are you ambitious, Egraine? No, my lord. Not even a little? My lord, I have no more ambition in me than one of those dead men hanging athwart the sunset. You are a queer woman. Pardon, I have a conscience. Gorlois bit his lip, stared her in the face, and set a hand upon her wrist. You can never shirk me, he said. I never shirk the truth. Come now, give me the word. My lord, may I save you pain in the telling of it. You can never come near to my heart. Woman, never be so sure. Gorlois drew back and said never another word. Egraine watched him furtively as his keen profile hung near her in the dusk, clear as marble. Now and again his eyes gleamed out upon her and made her fear the moment, 
while the oars swung out over the smiling stream, and the black woods started by like night. Soon the lights of Winchester showed up against the northern sky, and far ahead, over a straight stretch of water, they could see the lanterns and torches of the folk who kept festival. A golden mist and the noise of music came down to them, as they surged under the great water gate and ran on through the city amid a glimmering web of lights and laughter. Soon the barge found the shallows under white walls, and a grain was standing on the steps leading to Radamanth's garden, with a starry sky sweeping like a wheel above the world. Gorlois went slowly from her down the steps, with a face that was dark and brooding. Torchlight glimmered on the fillet of gold about his hair, on the splendid setting of his baldric, and the scabbard of his sword. At the water's edge he lifted up his face to her out of the night. It shall be life or death, he said. Then he was swept away with a red flare of torches over the river, and Igraine went solemn-eyed to bed. End of Book 2, Chapter 4 Recording by Thor Van Walsam in Hardwick, Vermont To read things I have written, visit thorvwis.cool